Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the, the God who is knowable yet incomprehensible. It is true we can know you, but we, we cannot comprehend your greatness. And it helps us to think about your uh, attributes and the fact that you are not confined by the things that confine us. So often we are on edge and we are anxious because we are under some kind of time constraint and we find ourselves in a situation where we are hoping that several factors come together at just the right time. And if they don't, it puts us in perilous circumstances. And sometimes that keeps us up late at night, worrying about something over which we have no control. But when we really reduce that worry down to its lowest common denominator, it, oftentimes it's an issue of timing. This needs to happen, and then this needs to happen, and then that needs to happen. And if any one of those pieces gets delayed, everything goes down. And we get on edge and we get worried. We live within time and we live under the constraints of time. You invented time. You're outside of time. That helps us. Uh, the psalmist because he knew the truth, said, my times are in thy hand. So therefore, you know the things that plague us, you know the things that worry us, you know the things that uh, concern us, you, you know timing issues in regard to work, in regard to money coming in, in regard to uh, bills that have to be paid. You know all those things that we think about because we are men and because the buck stops with us. And if the truth were to be known, undoubtedly there are many of us in this room and we're right there and that's foremost on our mind. Now, would you help us to be still and to know that you are God? and that you know all about our situation. You know all about the pressure. And in contrast to us, who can really, we, we can do limited things, but there are some things that are just absolutely out of our control. There is not a thing that is out of your control. You control every human heart. And people who are forgotten, you can make them remember. People who have promised and have not come through, you can prompt them to suddenly be compelled to fulfill the promise. It's called providence. You take care of our needs just in the nick of time. And while we're waiting for those needs to be met, we get anxious and we get worried. But help us tonight to cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. And there are some guys here who are in very difficult straits. They are under tremendous pressure. 
In another section of the Psalms, the prayer was made, I am in distress, answer me quickly. And there are some guys here that need a quick response. Would you do that for them, Lord? Once again, show them your greatness. Once again, show them your mercy. You do amazing things all the time. I think of that guy who this week was under pressure to make a significant payment. Yet funds have been held up. And a half hour before he needed that money in the bank, He received a check in the mail that was in $50 of what he needed. Now, Lord, we think you do that on the foreign field for missionaries. You do it for people all the time who just love you and are trusting in you. So help us to trust. You put us in tough situations so we'll be forced to trust. And then you do something great. And then it's our job and it's our privilege to honor you and to give glory to your name. While we're waiting for the answer, calm our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know how not to live your life, read the works of Machiavelli. A lot of uh, leaders that we are familiar with, a lot of uh, business leaders, a lot of political leaders are familiar with the works of Machiavelli. He was, uh, he was big on deception. He was big on doing whatever you needed to do to accomplish whatever you needed to accomplish. One of the things that Machiavelli wrote in his discourses was simply this. He said, though fraud in other activities be detestable, in the management of war it is laudable and glorious. And he who overcomes an enemy by fraud is as much to be praised as he who does so by force. There is a place within war for what we call intelligence and for what we call counterintelligence. Uh, over the summer, I read a book about an, uh, an English author, uh, and if you're familiar with uh, literature, you've heard the name of uh, Rode Dahl, uh, who was a uh, very creative, very imaginative writer, uh, actually uh, did some um, 
consulting and some work with Walt Disney. is a well-known uh, children's writer. His books sell to this day. Um, Roald Dahl was, a, uh, was an RAF pilot who was severely wounded in the early days of World War II. Uh, took him months and months and months to recuperate. He finally got to a place where he was able again to begin writing. Uh, his uh, recovery took much longer than he anticipated. Uh, for him, the war was over. Uh, to his surprise, he was recruited to uh, go to Washington, D.C. and be a part of the British Embassy staff. Um, he was a very outgoing, gregarious, winsome, uh, good-looking young guy, made friends easily, and it wasn't too long uh, that he had been in Washington that he, may be, he, he began to make friends with some uh, very powerful people. They would have parties at the British Embassy. He would meet different leaders, business leaders, political leaders. Uh, before you knew it, he was... Uh, he was friends with people in the highest positions of power. Uh, was friends with this senator from Texas by the name of uh, Johnson, Lyndon Baines Johnson, powerful man in, in the Senate. Uh, became uh, good friends with a powerful Texas publisher, uh, a man by the name of uh, Charles Marsh, who was a newspaper tycoon. And one introduction led to another. Eventually, he was introduced to Eleanor Roosevelt who was so taken with him, she invited him to the White House, uh, introduced her husband, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to him. They became uh, uh, fast friends. Uh, Roosevelt liked him so much, this young RF, RAF pilot. He invited him to his home at Hyde Park. He would go on the train up with Roosevelt, spend the weekend with him. He, he had a way of just picking up uh, Roosevelt's spirits. He was, uh, he was a fun young man. He had great stories. He was a quick-witted. And Roosevelt just liked spending time with him just to get away from the stresses of, and pressures of World War II. Um, what nobody knew at the time was that uh, Rode Dahl was not only a great author and a former wounded RF pilot, but he was a British spy who had been sent by Winston Churchill for a specific reason. And the specific reason was to, although the United States was not yet in the war, his job was to make friends. And, and there was a good relationship with the United States and with Britain. But he was actually part of a spy ring that was developed by Churchill. Uh, the book is called The Irregulars. And it is the story of Roald Dahl and the British spy ring in wartime Washington. Uh, Churchill recruited a man by the name of Stevenson, a Canadian. Who, uh, this was really a phenomenal book that I read over the summer. And, and I'm going to just give you a couple shots on it. I don't want to take too much time on it. But um, William Stevenson, whose code name was Intrepid, uh, was sent to America as part of Churchill's plan to prod the United States into action. Uh, uh, what Churchill said was, this may not have been the most honorable way to fight a war, but 
Churchill was convinced he had no alternative. His country's very existence was at stake. So he actually spent, sent Dahl and some other guys, including a young British officer by the name of Ian Fleming, to uh, Washington, work with the embassy, make friends, and he sent them here to find out what he knew was being withheld, uh, and to try and sway public opinion to get the United States into the war. Uh, Roald Dahl was what we call a mole, M-O-L-E. He was a mole. He, he got into the very highest echelons of power through being winsome, through being funny, through being accommodating, through just being a good friend. And Roosevelt and Johnson and other leaders begin to let down their guard, and they begin to say things to him, because as it says in the book, tall, handsome, and intelligent, Dahl had all the makings of an ideal operative. A courageous officer wounded in battle, smashing looking in his dress uniform, he was everything England could have asked for as a romantic representative of that imperiled island. He was also arrogant, idiosyncratic, incorrigible, and probably the last person anyone would have considered reliable enough to be trusted with anything secret. And therein was the deception. He was the last guy to look like a spy. But that is precisely what he was. We are in Ephesians 6, looking at the uh, 10 verses on spiritual warfare. If you've been with us by now, you're starting to commit these verses to memory because we keep going over them and we keep mining them because there are a lot of nuggets in these verses. In Ephesians 6.10, we read these familiar words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes, against the methods, against the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Three times we are told to stand firm in verse 11, in verse 13, and then again in verse 14, we are told to stand firm. Stand firm? Yes, because we're in battle. Stand firm because we have an enemy. Uh, not only do we have an enemy, but this enemy has a, uh, a, 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 a bureaucratic, demonic group of fallen angels who were thrown out of heaven with him when he rebelled against Almighty God. Uh, there is a spiritual war, there is a spiritual battle that is going on. Most of it is invisible. Most of it. Uh, when we see the affairs of the world, when we see political leaders who stand up and are against the truth of Jesus Christ and against the Word of God and against uh, the teachings of the Bible, you can understand and you should understand that it's just not that political leader. But there is an unseen presence behind the political leader who is influencing the political leader. There is this unseen world where there is spiritual battle constantly going on. Constantly going on. Uh, we have learned a number of things about our enemy, but one of the things that stands out about the enemy uh, is that he is very, very subtle. Uh, he is deceptive. He is cunning. Um,
extremely intelligent, but as one commentator said, he is intelligent, but he is not wise. He tends to use the same strategies. He tends to use the same methods uh, over and over again, depending on uh, your propensities, your, your weaknesses, uh, where you think you'll you are strong. Be careful if you think you're strong. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Oftentimes he'll get us where we think we're the strongest. He's a very cunning enemy. Um, one of the things that he does, and see, I have to tell you something. I keep trying to move ahead on these verses. I, I really am attempting to move ahead. But now, I now understand why Martin Lloyd-Jones would preach 56 sermons on 10 verses. Because I start to move ahead, and then I go back and I go, yeah, but... And that's kind of what I'm doing tonight. I was going to move ahead, but I'm... My goal was to have the armor finished by next week. We haven't even gotten to the armor. So um, we'll just stay with it for a little bit. One of the things that the enemy does that is so subtle is that the enemy works not only outside the church, the enemy works inside the church. The enemy has moles within the church. Flip with me, if you would, to Ephesians 4. I, I want to show you tonight, I want to talk about leadership. And within the church of Jesus Christ, there are two kinds of leaders. There are legitimate leaders, and for lack of a better term, there are lousy leaders. Now I'm going to define what I mean by lousy in just a minute. But in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about leadership in the church. Now remember, the enemy is against the plan of God, he is against the purpose of God, he is against the work of God, so that means he's going to be against the church. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the, watch this, the trickery of men. Now, who would they be? Oh, they would be the lousy leaders who would trick those in the church by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Well, that's demonic. That's what the enemy does. That's what his minions do. They are deceitful schemers. Uh, notice how 14, he says, as a result, we're, we're, we are no longer to be children. As a result of what? Well, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. In the Christian life, it's important to pay attention to the, to the legitimate leaders. And in the church, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. 
The church is built on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. But there are also other leadership positions and leadership offices that God has given to the church. These are the men that you want to listen to. Uh, the legitimate leaders are outlined beginning with verse 11. He gave some as apostles. The apostles are those who are hand-chosen and called personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there are not apostles today. Uh, the word apostello means to be sent out. They were called by Christ and they were sent out by Christ to establish the church. What would the apostle Paul do? Paul was all, had all these missionary journeys, and he would go into an area, uh, he would begin to preach, he would show up at the synagogue, he'd begin to declare Christ, and what would happen is he'd be there, they'd get upset, he'd get persecuted, knocked around, and by the time he left, some people had believed in Christ, they started the church, and then he moves on to the next city. The apostles were sent out to establish the church. Um, there are no new apostles today. Our apostles are the apostles that Jesus called. The apostles wrote the New Testament. The New Testament canon, the New Testament books, the, the, the benchmark was this. Either it is written by an apostle or it was sanctioned by the apostles. So the apostles were the truth givers to the entire church. Um, he gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets. I remember... Who was it that asked me the other night about Ray Steadman? Um, somebody did. They said, how can you remember all the things Ray Steadman said? I can't remember. Where, where is it? I, I'm seeing a hand somewhere. Who is that back there? Oh, oh, Joe, it's you. I'm sorry. There's a little bit of a... Yeah, you need to put more makeup on your forehead. There's a glare off your forehead there, Joe. <laughs> Joe and I were talking, and he said, how do you remember so much of what Ray Steadman said? And I said, well, I mean, I was around him for years and years. And then Joe pulled a picture out of his Bible of him and Ray Steadman. That was taken how many years ago, Joe? A long time ago. Because I didn't recognize you at all. <laughs> I mean, you look good, Joe. <laughs> anyway. He said, how do you remember all this? I don't remember all the things, but I remember some things. I remember Ray telling a story one time about dealing with, uh, meeting with some guys who were part of the, the Mormon church, and they were having a discussion, you know, very civil and all that, and one of the guys proving to him about the reality of the Mormon faith says, well, you see, we have apostles in our church. That's what sets us apart from, from Protestants. We have apostles. And Ray said, oh, well, we have apostles in, in our church. He said, you have apostles in your church? Ray said, yeah. He said, well, I thought it uh, Christians, they, they, they don't have apostles. He goes, oh, we have apostles in our church. And he says, well, you know, our, our, our chief apostle is such and such in Salt Lake City. They said, oh. And he said, no, who, who are your apostles? He said, well, we have Peter. We got John. We got Paul. We got, and he goes, oh, you mean those guys. Ray said, yeah, I mean those guys. Those are our apostles, you see. We're built on those apostles. He gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets. There were prophets in the early church. There were prophets in the Old Testament. Prophets would do two things. Prophets would, would uh, foretell, and they would tell forth. They would proclaim. Um, some as evangelists. 
uh, evangelists are the ones who birth the babies spiritually. They're the ones who have the gifts to preach the gospel and people come to Christ. You have great evangelists in church history. You have men like uh, George Whitfield in England who brought about the, uh, it was really through Whitfield and, 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 and the Wesleys that the first great awakening occurred. England was on its way to, to absolute chaos and anarchy just like France. Many thought that England was going to go into revolution just as was happening in France. But through the ministry of Whitfield, through the preaching, the open-air preaching, because they wouldn't let him in the churches. And at times, he would get out uh, in the open fields because they wouldn't let him preach in the churches. He'd get up on a tree stump, and he would preach to 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people without amplification. Okay, one of the great, greatest voices in history. One of the great actors in, in, in London said he would give $10,000, 10,000 pounds, if he could just say the word, oh, like Whitfield. But uh, Whitfield wasn't an entertainer. He was anointed by the Spirit of God. Uh, he would often preach to the coal miners who would come out of the mines after their 12, 14-hour shift, and their faces would be black with soot. And Whitfield could tell that the Spirit of God was moving when he could see white streams going down their faces from the tears. And he would write in his journal, the authority came down. And these men would be converted in the open fields as they would hear the gospel of Christ. And, and many historians believe that's what, that's what saved England from going the way of France in the Revolution. Uh, Billy Graham, man who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, he births people, and that's his gift. Not a pastor, he's an evangelist. They birth them, but then somebody's got to grow them. Well, that's the next one. He gave some as pastors and teachers. A uh, teacher describes the function of, of pastor. Pastors are to teach the Word of God. A lot of pastors don't teach the Word of God. A lot of pastors are out, you know, glad-handing and going to socials and going to events. And all that. But the task of a pastor, a pastor is a shepherd. The first job of a shepherd is to feed his sheep. The first job of a pastor is to feed his flock, is to open up the Word of God, uh, to equip them with the Bible, to equip them with the principles. The, the, the idea is that the pastor doesn't have to do... Sometimes when you're a young pastor, you get overwhelmed because you have all these expectations from people and you think you've got to do everything. You're not supposed to do everything. You can't do everything. You don't have all the gifts. I absolutely wore myself out in my first church I pastored. I burned myself out trying to, get it, trying to do this and this and this. But one man can't do it all. That's why there are different gifts. Uh, he gave us these legitimate leaders. He gave us these legitimate leaders, and what is their job? As they function, and they're given to the church, as they play their roles, what happens is, verse 12, this is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. A, a lot of times people uh, are... Uh, come to Stonebriar, and there is not an invitation here uh, where people are asked to come forward and we sing and for people to make a decision. Um, and sometimes people have not seen that before, they wonder about it. Well, there's a, and it's not that people don't receive Christ here, and it's not that people aren't available to talk with them, 
But you see, the primary function on Sunday morning, what Chuck does here, is that Chuck teaches the Word of God and he equips the saints. See, it's, it's, not, it's not an evangelistic station. See, a lot of times, those of us raised in church, we thought the pastor was supposed to preach to the unbelievers every Sunday, and then they come forward and receive Christ. It's the opposite of what Ephesians 4 says. The pastor is to teach the Word of God to the people of God, therefore equipping them, and then they go out and they do the work of ministry. So when you're at the gym and you're talking with some guy, and da-da-da-da-da, and he's, you know, he says, man, I'm just messed up, and da-da-da, you just, and you know, do you, you, just, you just start talking to the guy. And you don't have to drop it all, in, all at once unless the Spirit of God leads you. But you see, you build a relationship, and then you're out doing the work of ministry. You, you are being taught the Word of God, and you say, man, I don't know the whole Bible. Well, nobody does. Yeah, but I don't know as much as Chuck. Well, few do. But his job is to teach you, and, and the more you listen to godly men who teach the Bible, the more you're going to learn. And God will put you in places where there are people who need to hear what you have been given. A pastor can't go out and go all over the city and have all these appointments. But see, we have the church gathered on Sunday morning, so a pastor teaches them the Word of God, and then the church scatters all over, and you've been equipped, and then you're there, and then you have these meetings, these providential meetings, and sometimes you go for a while and you don't have any, but they're watching you. They're watching. It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attend... Oh, by the way, well-meaning people. Here's the problem with churches. Churches get into ruts and churches get into traditions. And how many churches on Sunday morning, every well-meaning people who love Christ, Sunday morning is an evangelistic sermon to unbelievers. Um, Bob Smith, who used to work with Ray Stedman, once wrote a book called, When All Else Fails, Read the Directions. <laughs> so what are the directions? Well, we always preach an evangelistic sermon on Sunday morning. Well, according to this, that's not the job of Sunday morning. The job of Sunday morning is to equip the saints. You speak to the Christians. You equip them. Then they go out. Wherever God has assigned you to your post, you see? Is this making any sense? See, that's the strategy. And it doesn't mean that people here don't come to the Lord. They come to the Lord every Sunday because faith comes by hearing. And hearing what? The Word of God. As the Word of God is preached. See, that's the work of the Spirit of God. Okay. And why is this so important? It's so important that oftentimes the enemy gets well-meaning people. They never look at the directions. And they keep doing it the opposite of what this says. And it's not very effective because you're not going to have a mature church because when your church is gathered, you're not teaching in the Word of God. You keep talking to the unbelievers. Therefore, you're going to have a group of people that are pretty much described in verse 14. As a result, we're, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Well, you know, I heard this teaching and I heard this teaching. And if you're not grounded, if you're not under legitimate leaders, if you're not in the book of the apostles, which is the Bible, if you're not sitting under a pastor that teaches the Word of God consistently, you are not going to be able to stand firm, as it says three times in that passage in Ephesians 6. Instead of standing firm, you're going to be swayed by every wind of doctrine. Are you not? 
Yeah, you are. By the trickery of men. Well, what's the trickery of men? It's the, um, it's the lousy leaders, it's the moles who are in the church. Now, I want to say something, and I want to be real clear. If you have a pastor and he teaches an evangelistic sermon every Sunday, I'm not saying he's a mole. You, you need to understand that. All right? There are some pastors in large churches, their actual gift is evangelism. A lot of large churches, historically, and if you read church history in America, a lot of churches that were large, and you can see this in different parts of the country, a lot of churches basically are led by pastors whose primary gift is evangelism, and people come in there, and people hear the Word of God. But those churches have tremendous turnover because usually, oftentimes, I remember one church that someone had studied, they had about three or 4,000 people on a Sunday. But it was figured out they had a core of about 800 people. The rest of them were coming in the doors and going out the doors about every 12 to 18 months. Because if they were going to grow in Christ, they had to go down to another church or that church or that church where they were teaching the Word of God and equipping believers. And God uses it all. You see? But we also need to say this. Within the church, so you've got to be on your guard as to what leaders you listen to because not every leader in the church is legitimate. Some leaders in the church are moles. Turn with me. Let's... let's talk about these uh, lousy leaders. By the way, the lousy leaders are part of the strategy, are part of the uh, methods of the enemy. Okay? And when you're under one, you're in trouble. So you have to learn to be able to discern between a legitimate, godly, biblical leader and the ones who are not. So, let's start with the words of Jesus in Matthew, um, I think it's Matthew 5. Actually, it's not Matthew 5. Actually, what it is is Matthew 7, verse 15. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Matthew 7, 15. Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, here's a warning from Christ. What he is saying is that within his kingdom, within the church which he's going to establish, there are, he said, he said now be on the lookout, be aware of false prophets. There are the real prophets that he mentioned in Ephesians, in, um, uh, Ephesians 4. But beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they dress, like, they dress like a Christian. They dress like a legitimate leader. They look like a legitimate leader. They got a Bible like a legitimate leader. They say all the right things at the right time. But be careful because they're not sheep inwardly inwardly, in their hearts. See, externally, they look like the real deal. But in their hearts, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Wolves eat sheep. Say, my gosh, well, how do I tell, how do I know which is which? Next verse, you will know them by their fruits. I'll quote Ray Stedman one more time, and I'll never quote him again. This is the very last time. Uh, Ray did a sermon one time called The Supreme Need for Fruit Inspectors. That was the title. 
And oftentimes people get hung up because, you know, in Matthew 7, earlier, Jesus says, you know, do not judge so that you will not be judged. You know, and people, oh, I don't want to judge and all that. And you need to read that in its context as well. What Jesus went on to say is, before you judge someone else, you first take the log that's out of your eye, before you take the splinter out of somebody else's. But in the same chapter, well, don't judge. Well, you have to judge. You have to be able to judge fruit. You're going to know them. How are you going to tell a legitimate leader from a lousy leader? How are you going to tell an authentic leader from a counterfeit leader? How are you going to tell a true prophet from a false prophet? By their fruits. And you're going to have to judge the fruit. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Do you see, you're starting to get the importance of fruit? How do you tell a legitimate leader from a counterfeit leader? You look at the fruit. You look at the fruit of their teaching, you look at the fruit of their personal lives. That's why Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch over your doctrine and your life. The life of a teacher should, uh, should reflect the, the, the teaching of, of the Word of God that he's teaching. There should be a congruency between what he teaches and how he lives. You want to screw a kid up faster than anything else? Teach him the Word of God, but then live opposite to the Word of God. Live, act like a Christian at church, but live like hell at home. He'll have nothing to do with Christ. You'll drive him away. Look at this, verse 19, every tree that uh, does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. So you look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of the teaching. Look at the fruit of their personal lives and behavior. Uh, verse 21, here's, here's a sobering thought. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So these false teachers, these false prophets, are going to say, Lord, Lord, they're going to have all the external trappings looking like legitimate leaders. But he says, not everyone who uses the right words, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to be a part of my kingdom. In fact, he says in 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know what these guys are? They're moles. They're moles. He says, I never knew you. These aren't, these aren't uh, pastors or teachers, guys that started out strong with Christ and then got off course. These, these particular individuals never knew Christ. Judas never knew Christ. Inwardly, he always resisted Christ. He had his own agenda. Oh, he said the right words. He was smooth. He was winsome. 
He never knew the Lord. They're still with us today. I find it interesting in verse 22. See, we often think, yeah, there's always a few bad apples. I'm trying to follow up on the fruit metaphor here. I don't know if you caught that. Obviously, you didn't. Um, Are there a few bad apples? Yeah, there are. Actually, there are more than a few. Jesus said, many will say to me. You know, one of the concerns we have to have, uh, interesting, isn't it, that in verse 22, Jesus, they say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out demons, and your name performed many miracles? He doesn't deny those things were done. Well, that's interesting. By the way, when Moses, we looked at Moses last week, when Moses went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go, do you remember he started doing miraculous things? And then the magicians of Pharaoh started duplicating the miraculous. They could, they could do it up to a point, then they couldn't, you see. So there is some power that Satan has been given, but it's very limited power. By the way, when he threw down his rod and it became a snake, and then the magicians of Pharaoh did the same thing, uh, Moses' snake, his serpent, Aaron's serpent, ate up the other snakes. See, the power of God devours counterfeit power every time. We live in a world where a lot of, uh, we, we live in a world where there's a whole segment of Christianity that is impressed by miraculous works. You've got to be very careful with miraculous works. Well, you have to believe because this guy did this and this guy did this. I remember reading a testimony by a guy who was a pretty solid Bible teacher who went and heard a teacher. By the way, this particular teacher has been around a long time and he's a disciple There used to be a guy named William Brannan, and he's not real well known these days, but he's sort of the father of a lot of the word faith movement. Uh, William Branham did not believe in the Trinity. He didn't believe in it. A lot, uh, and, and his disciples are everywhere. So this guy who was a pretty solid Bible teacher, went, heard one of his disciples. And this particular disciple said something, called out a, 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 a couple and said, here's your circumstance, you know, here's your situation, here's your son, he's got this disease, da, 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 and he'll be healed, or words to that effect, and it happened. And they swore they'd never met him, they'd never had any dialogue with him, and, and as a result of that, this pretty solid guy was, I mean, he was in. He was in hook, line, and sinker, and he's still there. We are told in the scriptures to test the spirits to see if they be of God. Just because you see a a, a powerful deed does not mean it's necessarily of God, does it? Look at their doctrine, and then look at their lives. I I mean, examine the teachings carefully. I'm, I'm, I'm not on delay, I'm thinking. Because I'm watching the clock, and I'm looking at this. 
And I'm trusting God for the right timing here, that everything comes together, because I'm not going to make it if I don't edit here a little bit. Um, uh, go to 1 Timothy 4.1. Now, are we saying God doesn't do powerful, miraculous works? Oh, no, we're not saying that. God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. But Christ will be honored. Christ will be exalted. Not my will, but thine be done, you see. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Remember, we're talking about moles. We're talking about spiritual warfare. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, 1 Timothy 4, 1, uh, later times, that's probably us. We're certainly later than uh, Paul was, right? We're 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ than Paul was. C can you say we're in the later times? I'd say we are. Yeah. The Spirit, so, so this is for us. The Spirit explicitly says. There, there's, there's no confusion here. There's no uncertainty here. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention, watch this, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, how is this going to happen? Well, by the means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. These, um, these, these false leaders, these counterfeit leaders, these lousy leaders, here we have them here, they're deceitful spirits, they're... The, the doctrines of demons. I, I want to point out something to you that's really important here. These lousy leaders tend to go, they, they will tend to take people one of two ways. The first way they take them is into legalism. They teach legalism. They preach legalism. The book of Galatians is all about legalism. They were saying, uh, Paul wrote to the church at Galatia because they were saying that you, 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 you are not saved by faith in Christ alone, but you were saved by faith in Christ alone, plus being circumcised. They were adding. They were adding a rule. So many churches get into legalism. So many churches get into rules. And if you were raised in a church like that, you know what I'm talking about. If you're raised in a legalistic church, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. Basically, you can't have any fun. It's how it's interpreted when you're a kid. Right? And if you were raised in a church like that, you know what I'm talking about. I was raised in a church like that. This is funny now. I remember the first time I went into a movie theater. I was, I was 17 years old. I, 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 well, I went in knowing I was going to hell. And you know what movie I walked in to see? Cinderella. That'd been hammered into me at church since I was a little kid. You, yet, we laugh at that now. There are some churches historically, you know, I, I mean just ridiculous stuff. You, you, 
uh, I mean, just, just insane. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't, you can't roller skate. You can't square dance. You can't, you can't, you can't. It just, it just takes all the oxygen. You, 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 just, you just can't. <coughs> and somewhere I read, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Who the heck wants a life like that? See, they take in the legalism. Men who forbid marriage. God doesn't forbid marriage. God's for marriage. Paul said, don't I have the right to take along a believing wife as do all of the rest of the apostles? This Roman Catholic idea that men in ministry are to be celibate is not found in the word of God. Men of God are to be sexually intimate with their wives often. And let us stand and sing, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's in the word of God. God's not a prude. God invented that stuff. He did. Yes, he did. And you go home and share that with your wife. I don't know. know. It's in the Bible, man. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food, which God has has created to be gratefully shared. So you look at the history of the church, and you see legalism, because what happened is, in some of the history of the church, people would get real weird. They'd get real ascetic. They would climb up trees and sit there in tree stands, and they weren't deer hunting. They're up there for 17, 18, 19 years. They let their fingernails grow long. They never cut their hair. They make a vow of silence. Where did that come from? How can you speak the truth in love if you have a vow of silence? How can you preach the word of God if you have a vow of Where did all this nonsense come from? It's every wind. It's not the Bible. It's not the word of God. It's a man-made, life-sucking, suffocating, Demonic teaching. That's what it is. Martin Luther found Christ he, in the Word of God. He got set free. You know what he started? He, he got married. He got married. He's marrying priests and nuns right and left. He's marrying them. Oh, it was terrible. It was great. Isn't that good? What's the matter with you guys? I don't know what you're on tonight, but... Uh, so these guys in 1 Timothy 4, they're, 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 they're saying, no, no, no. You know, you don't get married. You abstain from certain foods. You can't eat that. You can't eat that. You can't eat that. You know. But what does Paul say? Look at verse 4. Everything created by God is good. Nothing's rejected. It's received with gratitude. It's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. God's given us the earth. He's given us life. He's given us joy. You see? Enjoy. Thank God for it. Thank, when you thank God for the food, mean it. What a great God. I'm, I, look how he's blessed us. Look at what he's, look how he's, look how good he's been to us. This all comes from his hand. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, James says. 
So see, with these guys, they take the life out of you. They're false leaders. They're, uh, uh, but, all right, so I've made that point. They're legalists. But I want you to, later times, some will fall away from the faith. Why? They pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits coming through leaders who look like they're godly, that Jesus was talking about. These guys look like they're godly, but inwardly they're wolves. Uh, they're doing what? They're teaching doctrines of demons. How can they do that? Verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars... These are the men, they're hypocrites, the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So here's what happens. You have false teachers, um, this is wild, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. One of the greatest gifts God gives is conscience. In fact, Paul says, if you look early in 1 Timothy, uh, if you look at 1 Timothy uh, 1, look at verse 5. Paul, a legitimate leader, a legitimate apostle, Paul says this, but the goal of our instruction, now there, here's the whole reason I'm teaching. Here's the whole word I'm, I'm writing this to you. The goal of our instruction, here's number one, love from a pure heart. Two, and a good conscience. Three, and a sincere faith. You know what the false teachers have? You know what the uh, counterfeit teachers have? They have love, from an impure heart. It's love that's external only to bring you in and then to take advantage of you and to use you. The lousy teachers don't have a good conscience. They have a conscience that's seared with a branding iron. Uh, number three, the lousy leaders, the false teachers, don't have a sincere faith. It's a fake faith is what it is. These guys, uh, they teach these things by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Conscience is a nerve. A nerve. When I was a kid, we had a missionary come to our church. I was maybe seven or eight years old. And he worked in Africa with lepers. I'd never seen people with leprosy before. It, 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 it deeply affected me. It, it, I was crying watching this movie. These poor people who lost their fingers, their hands... Their, their feet, terribly scarred. What a horrible disease leprosy is. As a little boy, I thought leprosy was a skin disease. It's not. Leprosy is a nerve disease. A, a man who is walking from the village over to another village, he's walking barefoot, has the first stages of leprosy, and he's walking barefoot, and as he walks, he steps on a piece of glass, and he doesn't feel it. He just keeps walking, and it's not until he gets into the village they say, hey, your, your foot's bleeding. Why didn't he know his foot was bleeding? His nerves are dead. See, the nerves die. Therefore, the wound gets foul and infected. Their gangrene will set in. Uh, uh, pick up a, a frying pan that is red hot, but he doesn't know it's red hot because his nerves are dead and he can't feel anything. And it's not until he sees the flesh coming off on the on the, uh, on the skillet that he realizes, see, this is why these people are so dis are disfigured, because their nerves are dead. Conscience is a nerve. And what happens with false teachers, it's as though they've taken a red-hot poker and seared the nerve so that they cannot feel anything. And they will look you in the eye I'll never forget speaking, and I was a, 
This, one of the, this was really the first time I'd been invited to speak at a large conference, and I was completely intimidated. I, I, I thought, what, what am I doing here? And I remember getting in an elevator, and Howard Hendricks got in, and I didn't even know what to do. <laughs> because he was speaking, too. And I thought, what am I doing even in the same? I mean, I really, it was, it was, uh, that was quite a time for me. And, uh, and he said to me, what are you doing here? Get out. <laughs> it it kind of hurt me, actually, but he, 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 you know what, you know what's neat about Dr. Hendricks? He came, I, I was a rookie, and you know what? He came to my early morning session. He showed up. Wasn't that something? Was he going to learn anything from me? No. You know why he showed up? To encourage me. That's why he was there. And he's over there, and he's taking notes, and he's nodding like he was learning something. He could have taught that 48 different ways than what I was doing. Isn't that something? See, that's a legitimate leader. Uh, one of the evenings, it was two or three nights, I'm at a banquet, and uh, I'm s sitting at a table with some other speakers, and I'm I was, Mary and I were seated next to this uh, big-time pastor and his wife, and um, I knew this guy. I, 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 he had written a couple of books, pretty darn good books. I'd read them. I'd read them in detail, and he had a big ministry, and I was, so I'm talking to him for about 45 minutes. His wife's there, and I'm shooting all these questions and about discipleship and this and how you do this, and Yes, in fact, I'm leaving tomorrow for Korea, and we're going to go do this for three weeks and all that. Da, da, da. About two weeks later, uh, I got a, my copy of Christianity Today magazine. I opened it up, and I'm just flipping through it, and there's an article that he had been uh, forced to resign in his church because eight women who he had been having adulterous affairs with had come forward. And I thought about that for days and days and days and days. Because I talked to that guy, and his wife was right there, and he never blinked. He never blinked. And he kept saying, this, this has been going on for years and years and years. I told that story recently. A guy came up to me and said, was that such and such? And I go, no, that wasn't him. That's another guy. He said, oh, I thought it was him. I said, no. I know about that guy, but this is another guy. Usually when I go to a city to speak, I usually hear about a leader within the last year who's had a major impact, and this has happened. I hear about it all the time. And I remember saying to myself, how can this guy, how can this guy get up and teach? Well, you know, I'll tell you how. He has no conscience. Now, I want to I wanna make something clear. Um, there are those in the church, Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. There are moles. Paul said in Philippians 1 that different men preach the gospel. Some preach it out of selfish ambition. But as long as they're preaching the undiluted gospel, he was fine with it because they were preaching Christ. You see? There are some men in the church who are moles. There are some men in the church who have never known Christ. Never. Never although they're very impressive. How are you going to know them? You're going to know them by the fruits. 
There are other men who are believers, who know Christ, who love Christ, that get snared by the enemy and pulled into sin. They get ambushed by the enemy. When that happens to a believer who gets ensnared and entrapped in sin, what happens is, is that that believing individual will now, who does know Christ will now undergo the discipline of God. Hebrews chapter 12. So you say, well, sometimes, does that mean every leader that gets into, into immorality is, is not a Christian? No, it doesn't. But the one who knows Christ will be severely disciplined. Severely disciplined. That's Hebrews chapter 12. If you know the Lord and, and you decide you're going to go against him and go the way you want to go, you're going to be severely disciplined. Just know it. It's Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm out of time. And I've got to point you to one other thing. In First Peter, rather in Second Peter chapter 2. You guys still with me for a minute? Okay. In Second Peter chapter 2, note these words. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false prophets, false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. Right? These are the guys. These aren't the legalists. These are the guys that are in the license. You believe in Christ, and you can do anything you want because you're under grace. We are under grace. But the book of Romans says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. No. But there are those who teach, you just believe in Christ, and then you can live any way you want. It doesn't matter what you do. It just doesn't matter. But that's, and that's who's described in 2 Peter 2. Look, look down at verse 10. Um, they're daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. That's as far as I'll go. Uh, verse 19, I will say this, though. I can't, I can't stop. 18. For speaking out, I'm going to go 17. They are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. You can do anything you want. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So you see the two errors? Satan doesn't care which one you're in. You're in legalism, rules, rules, rules. Okay, those are the guys, uh, those are the guys in 1 Timothy 4. That's the book of Galatians. These guys, 2 Peter 2, 1, these are the guys that there are no rules. There's no authority. You just do whatever you want and enjoy the grace of God. No, you don't. God has given us freedom. I'll give you an illustration. 
In Ephesians 5, it says, don't be drunk with wine. Drunkenness is a sin. Absolute, it's a sin. Across the board, no question about it. Then you have Christians that get into discussion, well, is it okay for Christians to drink beverages with alcohol? You see? And you got Christians in both camps on that. That's a Romans 14 issue. Because, and you say, oh, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. Oh, no, no. Yes, it is. Well, I read an article that when Jesus turned the water into wine, it really wasn't wine. Well, why'd they like it so much if it wasn't wine? Why'd they say, why did you wait for the, to bring out the best at the last? Why did they say that? Because it was fermented wine. It was the good stuff. Now, you, you okay, all right? No, no, I've read those articles. I've read them. It was fermented wine, okay? See, now we're into Romans 14. Romans 14 are issues of conscience. One man uh, can eat meat offered to idols, but another man's conscience would allow him to do so. Let me say this. Where the scripture is clear, we're clear. Scripture's drunkenness is a sin, absolutely. On those other issues, they're matters of conscience. Some of you can, will, will drink, um, drink some wine. Others of you say, I couldn't do that. All right, you each have your conviction, Romans 14 says, but don't put your conviction on the other guy. Because there's freedom in Christ. Okay? Now, you know what? We're just teaching the Word of God here. The big challenge of teaching the Word of God is to teach the Word of God and not put your spin on it. Just preach it. And by the way, you listen to the guys who teach it and watch their lives. Watch them closely. Watch how they live. Watch how they interact. And you say, well, I, I can't get close to them and all that. Well, you can get a feel, and you know people who know them. And as the years go by, it's revealed. It's revealed. And here's the other thing. Don't put your trust in men. And don't put a man on a pedestal. Put Jesus on a pedestal. Men will disappoint you. Every man will disappoint you. I don't care who he is, he'll disappoint you, because every man is flawed. Jesus doesn't disappoint. We fix our eyes on him. And if, there's, if there is an ultimate scheme that the enemy will try to do in your life and mine, it's to get our eyes off of Jesus. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. And we'll stand firm. We thank you, our Father, for the power of your word that sets us free and helps us to discern truth from error. Thank you for the legitimate leaders. Thank you for the pastors that teach the word of God. Thank you for the evangelists that preach the gospel. Thanks that you equip us with, with our different gifts and our different skills. We're not preachers. We go to do our work, but some of us have these different gifts that you've outlined in the New Testament, and you give us opportunity, and we just simply tell them what we know about Jesus. That's it. Do we do it every day? It doesn't happen every day. If we're an evangelist, it might. But for the rest of us, it's here and there and here and there. But you've got us assigned to where you want us. You've given us gifts. And if we're following you, there is a fragrance and an aroma of Christ that is being perpetrated wherever we are. To some, it's an aroma to life. To others, it's an aroma to death. We want to stand firm in the word of God. Thank you for our church. Thank you for our pastor.
Thank you for the many teachers in this body that teach the Word of God. And that there are many other churches in our surrounding community. We can see them as we drive out of here that teach the Word of God. We thank you for them. We don't compete with them. We embrace them. We're the body of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.